0: Welcome to Ship It, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and teams with shared responsibilities. Today, we are talking with Michael Vlasman, technical lead for a large Dutch machine construction company and a cloud engineer by heart. We cover self-updating GitLab and Argo CV, Michael's thinking behind dev environment setup, and a Kubernetes workshop that he's preparing for his team. The goal is to function as a true DevOps team with shared responsibilities. This conversation started as a thread in our community Slack. Link in the show notes. Thank you, Michael, for being a long-time changelog listener and for reaching out to us. I enjoyed telling this story. I also enjoyed asking honeycomb.io In the last seven days, which of our Fastly edge locations served the most traffic? The answer came in 427 milliseconds. Washington DC is first, Frankfurt is second, and Paris is third. Fastly serves 90% of all our traffic with minimal latency straight from their edge locations. Learn more at Fastly.com
1: This episode is brought to you by Acuity, a new platform that brings fully managed Argo CD and enterprise services to the cloud or on-premise. The platform is a versatile Kubernetes operator for handling cluster deployments the GitOps way. And I'm here with Kelsey Hightower, angel investor and advisor to Acuity. Kelsey, why are you excited about Argo CD and what's happening here with Acuity?
2: When I think about Argo C D, it represents the transition from traditional CI CD. You know, you have a big server with a built-in workflow engine, and you can only do what that system can do, whether it's Jenkins, whether it's Spinnaker, you name it. Those things are tend to be all in solutions and they're all predicated on having like their own built-in workflows, UIs, and ways of doing things. And then when I think about kind of the Argo CD, that whole open source movement kind of backed by the ideas we saw in the Kubernetes world, which was each of those steps is nothing more than just a step in a workflow. And after 10, 20 years of doing CI CD, how best to represent those steps? And it turns out this whole container thing is probably the best way to have little snippets of logic sit at each of those steps in the workflow, and then you can kind of exchange them and share them to build any pipeline you want. So the way to look at this is Kubernetes has never had a workflow engine or tool. And so when you think about kind of Argo workflow or Argo CD, which is kind of a specialized workflow, kind of attacking the, how do you roll out software problem? That's the way I would think about it. So if you're all in on Kube, and you like the Kubernetes ecosystem, then you kind of have a choice of workload types. And I would probably just say it's another workload type you can put in your toolbox. So if you got something that can benefit from a workflow engine and reuse the logic that you already have in containers, it kind of feels like the perfect fit. The perfect fit.
1: All right, thanks, Kelsey. Well, the next step is to head to acuity.io changelog. They are inviting all of our listeners to join the closed beta. Again, acuity.io changelog. Links are in the show notes.
3: We are going to send three. Two,
0: one. two months ago, Michael reached out via Slack, and he said, Hi, all. This longtime listener from when Changelog was on the 5x5 network, has finally joined the Slack. I like that you referred, Michael, to yourself in the third person. That was very good. <laughs> you definitely impacted my career and love for the open source community. Big love and thank you. Michael, I'm very happy to welcome you here today on ShipIt. Welcome. Thanks for inviting me. So these are my favorite stories, the, the long-term ones. When was... By the way, the 5x5 five five network, how long ago was that, Michael? I
4: looked at uh oh, it was uh, in 2009 when you joined 5x5. Five five. Wow. And uh, I listened to other podcasts in that uh, network. Mm. And so I also uh, came across this one. And uh, in that time, I was uh, really busy with, uh, also with uh, Docker. And uh, mm-hmm. in 2013, there was uh, a talk from a, uh, Solomon Hikes on the in the Twitter uh, meeting, or I learned yeah. about uh, do, Docker. So uh, that was uh, my inspiration to go uh, full on uh, web development. Uh,
0: wow. So the tweet from Solomon inspired you to go into develop web development full time?
4: Yeah, I came across that uh, the demo from the first uh, Docker uh, intro.
0: That's okay. I'll mention it to him. I'm sure he'll be very glad to hear that. Okay. So what inspired you? I'm very curious from the tweet. What was it?
4: It showed me that uh, the world uh, is going to change with the technology that uh, Docker provides us. So I even uh, set my study on hold to, to fully focus on uh, Docker and to learn, uh, learn the technology. And then mm-hmm. I, uh, that full year, I did, uh, I did over for school, for uh, my study, because I okay. thought it would, uh, would change the world. And uh, next uh, year, I uh, had uh, an internship at a company where I introduced Docker. And then uh, later on Kubernetes and that, uh, yeah, that was a great success. So I'm very, very uh, thankful for, uh, for Docker
0: <laughs> and Kubernetes, of course. Are you still using Docker today? Yes, but I use uh, another
4: tool like uh, Rancher desktop mm-hmm. and more like the, 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 OCI, uh, general, uh, tools, which are available.
0: Okay. But when it comes to running your applications, the ones, that, the ones that you're part of, you're not using Docker in production to run them. You're just using Docker locally you're using Rancher Desktop locally to build the images, I'm assuming?
4: Yeah, it's, it's quite a different uh, setup nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, using Kaniko to, to build building uh, the images in the, in the cluster itself. So, the yeah.
0: So that is used with Kubernetes. Do you have a local Kubernetes or do you target a remote Kubernetes? Yeah,
4: it's a local Kubernetes cluster with Rancher and that one builds images.
0: Okay, and you're using Kaniko, okay. That's good to know, okay. Cool, okay, see, sidetrack by technology. Like, can you tell I'm a nerd <laughs> for this? Like, you know, whenever I hear things like that, like, yes, tell me more, tell me more, okay. So when you introduced yourself to you, two months ago, you said that you're a cloud engineer by heart. What did you mean by that? And specifically, what does it mean to you to be a cloud engineer?
4: For me, it's a, a, a way to enable the developers in the team and UX designers to deliver the, the software. So uh, full on uh, focus on the developer experience, from the, st- the moment you're beginning to, to, to code to when it's in a feature site or review app to uh, to production. So okay. I'm focused on uh, make that experience great, so they can then their potential can be uh, can be used to the full extent.
0: So if cloud shipper was a role, I think you're a cloud shipper. You're shipping code into the cloud. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what is the difference between what you just mentioned and a platform engineer?
4: I think uh, as a cloud within the team, you have more connection with uh, with your development team. Mm-hmm. So you, you stand a lot close to them and you can uh, you know, discuss. Uh, I think you're more integrated into the, the, the project, for example.
0: Okay. I know that the platform engineers, they're more about the self-service model. So what do they need to build so that others can just consume it themselves via docs via apis mm-hmm. uh, and less about you know helping them go through that and provision things or set things up so i think it would help me understand a bit better if you were to describe your day-to-day like what does your day-to-day look like when it comes to interacting with the engineers with the admins do you have admins i'm not sure whether you have no. admins like people no. so okay so no infrastructure ops sort of people okay okay and the front end. Oh,
4: sorry, sorry. We we have we have admins.
0: Yep, that's fine. That's fine. So, when it comes to your day to day, what does it look like when it comes to interacting with all those different types of roles within the company?
4: Now, for now, we are we are migrating from on premise to, to cloud. So, uh, for now, it's it's mainly setting up uh, the new stuff, uh, the greenfield, and the the challenge is for me now to keep the engineers uh, so that they can keep the work work going. And uh, so that they aren't blocked in their
0: work. So do you have mostly backend developers that just develop APIs or like what do the engineers develop?
4: Yeah, it's both frontend and backend.
0: And um, do you have the SRE type or the ops types, the ones that look after the systems, or are they fully managed? What does that look like?
4: Yeah, so we have uh, multiple uh, people and... Some people are uh, we dependent on so they do a lot of uh, database actions. Other people uh, don't focus purely on front-end and others purely on uh, back-end. My goal also is for the team to be able to, uh, so that everyone can, uh, for example, add a environment variable to a deployment if if they need to have that. So, And that they don't uh, depend on uh, on some ops person to, to uh, do that.
0: That's nice. So that's that self-service model where people know how to make the changes, there must be some documentation, I, I imagine, that they can look up, they know how to make the change, and when the change is made, and I think this is like a bit of the GitOps model, it's in a repository, it gets merged, it gets applied to the environment, is that right?
4: Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct, yeah.
0: So what does your stack look like, I'm wondering, because that will help me understand a bit better in terms of the technology that you use, whether it's front-facing, whether its, its, it's a mobile app, whether it's multiple things, what does that look like?
4: So, yeah, uh, we have the Greenfield uh, new cloud environment mm-hmm. that contains uh, Terraform, first of all. It's with one uh, push of, on a button, it's uh, be able to uh, deploy all, all what's needed. So, uh, like a Kubernetes cluster, uh, VPCs,
0: and all, all that. Where does this Terraform run? Sorry to interrupt.
4: For now, it runs in uh, Azure DevOps. Okay. We tied that to that one the goal is to have it in a gitlab ci because it enables us to be a bit more flexible and it's we we think uh, it's the more mature platform for how it works and also i'm a big fan of uh, gitlab uh, myself so that's why
0: so gitlab is the ci cd system or just the ci system Uh, both both okay so gitlab ci cd and you have some pipelines that provision infrastructure that is provisioned using Terraform infrastructure is Kubernetes other things other than Kubernetes clusters
4: mainly Kubernetes and the database is separately managed by another another team for now okay maybe in the future it uh, it moves also to cloud
0: and where do you provision the Kubernetes clusters
4: yeah it's uh, it's in uh, uh, Azure for now Mm -hmm. but we uh, have uh, made it so that it's also available in uh, able to to run out in GKE for example okay okay so we made it uh, cloud agnostic as much as possible so we can we can move to another cloud if that's uh, that's required.
0: So when after Kubernetes comes up and there's this managed database that comes up, what happens next?
4: Now, for now, the managed database is not, not in place yet. So it's okay. for the future. But uh, yeah, we have uh, Argo CD uh, uh, installed uh, via that uh, Terraform uh, script. Mm-hmm. So in the Terraform applied, it, uh, it creates Argo CD uh, with the Helm chart. Mm-hmm. Then it pulls down uh, from uh, the Git repo, it pulls down the root application, Argo CD application. Mm-hmm. And from that one, it uh, spins up all uh, necessary tools. For example, the uh, an, an Ingress controller and a, uh, Argo CD itself is it's also managed by uh, by Argo. So that's also uh, quite a nice uh, thing to, uh, to be able to manage Argo through
0: Argo. That's very interesting. I mean, if Argo manages itself, mm-hmm. what happens... If it's upgrading itself and it's still running, will the run fail?
4: Well, in the end, it can fail if, if there's a missing uh, chart uh, value, for example. Mm-hmm. But we're going to set up the Prometheus uh, monitoring to to log that, and then it uh, notifies us that it's been failed. But if you are upgrading Argo to the latest latest release, what you face on the on the UI so you you see that it
0: fails. But what I'm wondering is if Argo is upgrading itself. Mm-hmm argos running while it's upgrading the upgrade gets applied which means that the run will have to be stopped right because it's it just needs to basically restart with a new version and when that happens how does it continue the upgrade because the upgrade failed because it was updated do you, do you see what i mean
4: yeah i see what you mean so it's it's uh, using the deployments for example for the controller so it's it's it tears down the old controller when the new controller is up, mm-hmm. so in that way it keeps running. Yeah, I, I tested it uh, thoroughly, so it uh, it worked for quite a, re- a few releases now. So
0: is this a done thing where like a service can update itself in Kubernetes? I think like this is a very interesting pattern which I ha- which I haven't seen.
4: Yeah. So first of all, when Terraform is uh, applied, mm-hmm. it fetches the a local repository from uh, our GitLab instance.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: It looks at uh, the values. Of that of that Argo CD, and then it's it's for one time it does a, a local Helm install, mm-hmm. and from there on it watches that root app repository, and then it uh, can and then Argo CD takes over that initial Helm install upgrade. Okay. Uh, that Helm, initial Helm install, so that way uh, we can uh, update version of Argo and then uh, it it will uh, be released in the cluster.
0: Now, this sounds very interesting. Do you have some code that is publicly available for me to look at just to see how you configure this? Because this is super interesting to me.
4: Yeah, yeah, I can make it available, it's uh, it's okay.
0: Yeah, they'll they'll be very nice to see how Argo CD can update itself without any downtime. And then when the run finishes, it succeeds and Argo itself is at a new version. That is very cool.
4: And that same one applies to uh, how we now I used to uh, administer GitLab, so a uh, self-hosted mm-hmm. version of GitLab. So you also wanted uh, with that GitLab uh, instance uh, once a month at least, or and uh, with the, with the patch releases, mm-hmm. I needed to uh, roll a script and then update uh, GitLab, and I was tired of that. So uh, just like uh, Kelsey Hightower mentioned in the previous episode, when you want to automate it, first you have to know exactly how you want. Uh, how we do it manually. And uh, so that was also a, a great lesson from Kelsey Hightower. So I was tired of building uh, that by myself. So I automated uh, the whole process. Okay. So it was once a night, there will be uh, run a, a GitLab uh, CI job on a schedule, which checks uh, if there's a new release or a new patch release mm-hmm. of uh, GitLab. And then it creates a, uh, a merge request for itself. So there's a CI which, which creates a merge request and assigns it, assigns it to the, the administrator. Mm-hmm. And then the administrator can uh, merge that merge request. And then GitLab will, using GitLab CI, it will apply the, itself to the cluster and then it's upgraded.
0: So in this case, we're talking about a self-hosted GitLab yeah. that is running on Kubernetes and you're merging the, the pull request, which changes, basically upgrades GitLab which then GitLab runs and it gets upgraded. It basically upgrades itself in Kubernetes. Okay, okay. And again, no downtime. I'm surprised by this. No downtime.
4: Well, it depends. If it's a major release with migrations for the database, you have downtime. But we were a small company with 10 people. So that was, it went uh, smooth.
0: Yeah. I'm still missing the piece because if there is downtime, so there's like this piece which I'm missing around... How can an upgrade continue running if the system that runs it will be taken down?
4: That's a good question. In the case of GitLab, it's quite easy because the CI is a different, there are different um, deployments, Mm -hmm. different pods than than where GitLab itself is is hosted. So as long as that job runs, it takes care of the the upgrade in in Kubernetes.
0: But won't that job be upgraded part of the upgrade? Because that's also GitLab, right? that, That runs the job. Mm-hmm. So the job that yeah. runs will upgrade itself, which means it will have to terminate, which means it will not know whether it succeeded or not because it's running the upgrade.
4: So when a GitLab runner gets uh, terminated mm-hmm. because of the upgrade, it first waits waits until the, all jobs it has assigned to it will, uh, will succeed or finish. So in that case, the Helm chart upgrade in that, uh, in that CI job, will get, uh, it will wait for that to, to succeed
0: but then it can't upgrade itself. So like the job will not go down because it's still running mm-hmm. and it's waiting for itself to be upgraded. So how does that work?
4: It's quite uh, jealous to, to, to say in words, uh, to describe it in words.
0: Do we need a di- diagram? I think we need a diagram. Uh, yeah, I need a diagram. Yeah, yeah. Okay, 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 all right, yeah, up, yeah. Okay. So yeah, because that that will definitely help explaining this. Okay. I remember because I was involved with like similar systems that would upgrade itself. Concourse uh, was one CI that mm-hmm. we were using Concourse to upgrade itself. But when that was upgrading itself, like it would apply the upgrade, the job would be forced terminated, the one that was upgrading itself. So the job would fail, mm-hmm. but the job would be configured to re-trigger itself. So when... The job would be scheduled again because it hasn't hasn't finished, so it will need to retry. The job would start from the beginning. It would say, "Oh, this is has already been done." So I'm, it was idempotent. Exactly, it was like trying to apply the same upgrade, but the second time when it would run, it would succeed because it would see the upgrade actually was successful. And the first time when it ran, it was it was basically aborted, but the job was aborted, not the upgrade. I mean, that was like yeah. still running because once you give the instruction to whatever it's upgrading, in this case, it was, um, it was Bosch. That was basically managing the upgrade. The upgrade would go through, but concourse wouldn't know whether it succeeded or failed. And then mm. like try to up- apply it again. And then it would talk like to the Bosch direct in that case. And this is not too dissimilar from the Kubernetes uh, controller, or like, the shall I I say, the control plane. So the control plane would know what the state is, and then the job would succeed on the retry because, oh, guess what? The update has already been applied. So that is how I've seen it work. But again, the initial run would fail.
4: In our case, it wouldn't fail. It wouldn't Mm, succeed. Wow, okay.
0: I I, I really want to see the diagram. (laughs) That's what I think. That's That's super interesting. Okay.
1: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. They give software teams instant visibility into the quality and the performance of their software. And I'm here with John Daniel Trask, co-founder and CEO of Raygun. JD, would you say Raygun is focused on monitoring or in quotes, observability? How do you draw the line? Is it monitoring or is it observability?
3: Yeah, I tend to find our industry gets super hung up on labels and what their definitions are. You know, you see the constant battle of, you know, is observability? really just traces logs and metrics or is it more and it's like well to me at the end of the day I think of it as the objective which is allow me to fix issues fast and understand how to debug them quickly and if I can do that I don't really care if it was from a metric a log or or whatnot you know just help me solve problems quickly and so Raygun absolutely provides a level of observability and I would class it as the classical term of monitoring but say our APM product uh, you know most APMs these days are doing great stuff with things like spans and you know of these things. Raygun's APM does method-level profiling, right down to it, very low overhead, you know, and when people bring that in and they go, hang on, so this integrates with my source control, I can look at the code, I can see down to the lines of how long this is taking to to execute. That's actually a level I find of observability that isn't in a lot of the observability companies' capabilities, right? They have high-level span saying, well, this service took this long. It's like, cool, but how long did the methods inside it take? You know, I want to understand more than just the slow SQL statements. I want it to proactively identify code smells, which is again another difference that Raygun's APM has. Our vision is to try and have Raygun feel like it's a virtual team member working 24 seven on your side, identifying things and helping give you the context to fix them. To me, that's observability.
1: Well said, J.D. All right, head to RayGun.com to learn more and start your free 14-day trial. No credit card required. Join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use RayGun every single day to deliver flawless experiences to their customers. Again, RayGun.com. (laughs) RayGun.com.
0: So I I know that a lot of users are using GitHub and GitHub Actions. Mm. Not that many, again, from the ones that I'm talking to are using GitLab. What made you choose GitLab?
4: The GitLab CI was uh, a while back part of GitLab itself, way before GitLab Actions was introduced. And that made it very easy to set up GitLab. That made it very easy to set up the CI system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there were some features in uh, in GitLab I found very useful. For example, if you've got a readme, then you could show the source files in the web ui mm-hmm. and a lot of f- features they weren't in, in in github yet they they are added now but mm-hmm. and and also gitlab has a once a month uh, release with a lot of features every month added nice so that was uh was very nice. and also the for us it was very important to to have a self-hosted GitLab so we could uh upgrade our to our needs if we wish
0: how long have you been using GitLab for? How many years?
4: Uh, actually, I started with GitLab eight in 2013, also around that same year, mm-hmm. when they still had that uh, the old uh, Tanuki uh, icon. You know, the, the non non-orange one.
0: <laughs> I don't remember that one. I have to say. Okay, so the yeah, original a, the original GitLab icon. Yeah. Okay.
4: And I found uh, I came across them by a DistOcean uh, post. DistOcean had a lot of tutorials. Which I learned a lot from. So uh, that's what, uh, and then I set it up uh, at first uh, at my uh, home uh, server mm-hmm. for the first time, and uh, then uh, CI was added, integrated in the C- in the GitLab CI in the mm-hmm. in the GitLab, and at my job uh, back then uh, in my internship, I introduced Git- GitLab. Mm-hmm. So we uh, with all those nice uh, features and uh, feature sites and. Uh, yeah, new shiny things. Mm-hmm. GitLab and GitHub has uh, quite a lot in, in, in common uh, these days, mm-hmm. but back then it was uh, the feature set uh, differed uh, a lot.
0: Okay, so in the almost 10 years since you have been using GitLab, did you have some upgrades that didn't work very well because you were self-hosting it? Any issues that you ran into it while you were running it yourself that you wish you hadn't?
4: Yeah, the, the upgrades back then uh, were not always that smooth. So, for example, uh, mainly the, the major updates, upgrades were not what's so, that so smooth.
0: So, like eight to nine, nine to ten, is that what you're thinking about?
4: No, also the the, the minor updates, upgrades. Okay. There were bugs introduced, and then we had uh, the option for ourselves to to go back to the previous previous version of of GitLab. That was mm-hmm. also a reason why we want to self-host. So mm-hmm. we we have that. Uh, we didn't want to upgrade uh, GitLab uh, before a major client uh, project update.
0: I example. see. Okay. Yeah. And would you ever run migrations? So rather than upgrading in place, would you like blue green? You'd stand another Git GitLab, and then you'd migrate the data. Have you ever done that?
4: No, no, no.
0: Okay, so always in place upgrades.
4: Yeah, we are we all, we had uh, backups, of course, uh, for for oh. all. So in theory, we could go back uh, with uh, an old database.
0: Okay. So apart from like a few issues with upgrades, things were fairly straightforward. You didn't have like days and days of things where you couldn't use GitLab because something didn't work. Okay. So everything was fairly easy to navigate when problems did happen. That's good. Okay. So, okay. And you still use GitLab today? Yeah, indeed. Okay. And where does... Azure DevOps or Azure DevOps, as some pronounce it, fit with GitLab, how do the two work? Because you have three, you have Azure DevOps or Azure mm-hmm. DevOps, as I call it, GitLab, and Argo CD. How do th- the three work together? Plus obviously Terraform, but that's for something else.
4: So uh, it all starts with Azure DevOps in the in our setup. And uh, th- that one is uh, responsible for applying the Terraform infrastructure mm-hmm. code. And our, in, in those repositories, there are references to GitLab where the, the other code is hosted. Okay. So they are not tied into each other with API or, or something or something.
0: I see. I see. And Argo CD gets deployed on the cluster and then Argo mm-hmm. CD manages the application so you don't use GitLab or Azure Azure DevOps to deploy the app, you're not using those? No. Okay, so Argo City manages the app. So I remember that we got up to Argo CD. Mm-hmm. So Argo City does deploy one app, multiple apps. How does that setup look like?
4: Uh, for now it deploys the infra- infrastructure which is needed. So mm-hmm. Argo itself, uh, the GitLab runners, and uh, the GitLab agent, also the ingress controller. And we want to have it so that the, app- the, the applications company applications uh, the, the, the actual workload is also managed through Argo mm-hmm. for now uh, Argo CD manages the infrastructure related workload so mm-hmm. for example the Ingress uh, the GitLab runner and the GitLab agent and some other infrastructure infrastructure tools and for now the, the workload is uh, run is deployed using uh, GitLab CI like a, a push model mm-hmm. so GitHub uh, push the downside of that is that it you need to deploy them if you got a brand new cluster. You need to deploy them actively. So, in contrast to a, a GitOps pool model, which Argo CD is, uh, is using, in that case, the infrastructure as code is as is, and you don't and you can just continue where you left off. So, we want to, uh, in, in the end, we want to integrate also the, the workload applications uh, yeah. minus through Argo CD.
0: That makes sense. Okay. yeah, I mean, some of that is coming back from our Kubernetes days where when we were running our application on Kubernetes, we would start with the latest. So whatever was latest at that point in time, that's what would be pulled down. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have a declarative model that specified these are all the things that you need to be running part of this cluster. So it was still like you would set up like the initial tools and then like you would deploy a bit more and a bit more, like more of the dependencies until you would eventually be able to deploy the application. I know what you mean when you say that Argo CD isn't managing the deployment currently, but you're, it's like that push model. GitLab does like a push deploy of the app, okay.
4: The upside of using a GitLab push model with uh, GitLab CI mm-hmm. to deploy your application is that you see in your logs of GitLab CI, you see what's what's eventually, or what's, potentially uh, is going uh, wrong. So you feel, you see a failed state.
0: Right, yeah. So GitLab is showing you when a deployment fails Mm -hmm. versus Argo CD showing you when when a basically apply failed.
4: So uh, if you uh, use uh, automated task to release your your, your, uh, application, Mm -hmm. it creates just a commit, but that's not not showing you if the the deployments uh, fails. So yeah. that's quite a that's that's a challenge we have to uh, accommodate for.
0: So when it comes to all those different systems that do things to your infrastructure, how do you basically understand what is the source of truth, what is running where because mm-hmm. Gitlab does something, Argo does something else. How do you reconcile all of these systems into single view?
4: Yeah. We made the documentation for that. That's mm-hmm. a simple answer that uh, so everyone can can just uh, Continue uh, working on it. Mm-hmm. When I'm on vacation, the, the the goal is that everybody can just uh, go along and uh, also edit uh, the infrastructure.
0: Okay, so so there is a document that people can read to understand where the different endpoints are, what basically the things to check are, whether it's the Argo CD UI, whether it's the GitLab pipeline view, whatever the case may be, yeah, where they can go and see what the current state of the world is.
4: I am planning to to uh, organize a Kubernetes workshop for mm-hmm. uh, my team, so I can uh, also explain to them how those things are, are working. So everybody, everybody have a nice understanding on uh, on the setup.
0: So would you expect your team members to use kubectl or kubectl? cuddle? Yeah. Kube cuddle. Which one do you prefer? Hang on, this is really important. How do you call <laughs> the tool, the CLI for Kubernetes? How do you call it?
4: I always say kubectl.
0: kubectl, okay, good. I know there's like so many pronunciation. it's important to use the one that you prefer. Yeah. Okay, so would you expect your team members to use kubectl directly?
4: Yeah, they, they ask for it. Mm. It feels like the same as uh, asking for SSH access to me. Okay. So I also always think about, yeah, uh, there is a goal behind that, that why would they want kubectl? And mainly it's, it's because of logs. Uh, they to see the application logs
0: logs okay yeah
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. on the roadmap yeah we we also uh, now have a uh, goal to to add uh, loki as a uh, logging uh, logging system so when when that's set up they don't need access to uh, mm. they don't need access to the cluster directly
0: would you so you're setting up all these clusters would you think of centralizing the logs how that work because i imagine you have a production cluster Or like, first of all, how do you slice up your clusters? Is it per environment? Is it per application? How does that look like?
4: Yeah, it's uh, per environment. Per environment. We have uh, development acceptance production clusters.
0: Okay, so you have three clusters. And are you thinking of running low-key in each of them?
4: Yeah, it's good that you mentioned that. It's still a uh, discussion point. The same applies to Argo itself. Mm. I heard somewhere or read somewhere that it's not very... Recommended to host Arcot CD in that same cluster it's managing. Mm-hmm. So I would go about to uh, to split that into a separate repository of a separate uh, cluster. And that also applies to uh, the the logging system and the uh, the monitoring system like a uh, Prometheus. So we uh, we have to uh, think about that one.
0: Yeah, when you rotate the clusters, when the clusters go away, or you don't have just the three, there's a fourth one. Mm-hmm. Then you have like n places to look for things. And it's nice because it's self-contained but then it makes you wonder well shall i have a single system to centralize all these things and then maybe you're thinking should i maybe i don't know have a managed service for this have a service for logs just as you have one for database so that you don't have to run those things yourself because then you know there's a contract there's a Mm -hmm. commercial contract and I know that in Europe, it can be a little bit challenging because of data privacy and like all sorts of regulations around data. And that's why you could, maybe the choice isn't as uh, broad as it's in the US, but it's still better than having to worry about your logging system yeah. or your metric system or whatever the case may be. And that's just like a service that you consume.
4: Indeed. And there's also a cost to managing it. So you have to maintain it.
0: Exactly. Apply upgrades and you know how fun those are. Right?
4: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially if there's a log4j uh, CVE going around. It's quite tricky to do it yourself.
0: So where do you stand on that? Would you prefer to have a managed service or would you like to run it yourself? What would you prefer?
4: Yeah, the, the nice thing about running it yourself, I found that you are in control of uh, when you upgrade and hmm. whatnot. That's the main benefit of running it yourself.
0: So would you run it yourself?
4: Yeah, for now I think I would run it myself because if you make the, the maintenance story easy for for everyone even with tools like uh Dependabot or uh, renovate bot uh, you just have a merge request and then uh merge it and uh and you're able to see that the deploy that uh, the rollout goes uh, goes well mm-hmm. then the maintenance burden is is uh should be low but yeah, mm-hmm. i can see why people choose for a cloud solution
0: yeah i mean since you run gitlab self-hosted i kind of could have guessed which way you're going, like you would prefer mm-hmm. to run your service self-hosted. And I think for you as, because you're based in Europe, I think the data protection and the data regulations are much easier to work with, right? Because yeah. all the data, you know where where it where it is, all of it. So you don't have to worry about, well, where, where does this service put it? And you have to figure out which region you want and a couple of other things.
4: But also uh, when you got the route to a SaaS offering, uh, then you have to uh, get the people along with you, uh, which are up higher up the stack, higher mm-hmm. up the, uh, the the organization, which is in a in a, a large company. Uh, sometimes uh, a great challenge.
0: <laughs> okay, so you're saying that the company itself prefers, like the leadership prefers, for you to run everything yourselves versus using managed services or like software as a service.
4: Yeah maybe not but it's the 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 easy route is to host it yourself it's Mm -hmm. practically in the in practice that's uh, that's the easy route
0: okay
1: This episode is brought to you by Sentry. Build better software, faster, diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. More than a million developers in 68,000 organizations already use Sentry, and that includes us. Here's the easiest way to try Sentry. Head to sentry.io slash demo slash sandbox. That is a fully functional version of Sentry that you can poke at. And best of all, our listeners get the team plan for free for three months. Head to Sentry.io and use the code CHANGELOG when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code CHANGELOG. And by Chronosphere. When it comes to observability, teams need a reliable, scalable, and efficient solution so they can know about issues well before their customers do. They need a solution that helps them move faster than the competition. And companies born in the cloud-native era often start with Prometheus for monitoring, which is obviously an amazing piece of software, but they quickly push it to its limits and often outgrow it. They run into issues with siloed data, missing long-term storage, and wasted engineering time firefighting the monitoring system versus delivering their application with confidence. They describe the system as a house of cards, where a single developer's seemingly benign change can overload the whole monitoring system, or they say they're flying blind because they pride themselves on making data-driven decisions, but losing visibility means they lose this competitive edge. Ryan Sokol, VP of Engineering at DoorDash, has this to say about Chronosphere. Quote, the visibility and control the Chronosphere's platform gives us to manage our observability data and costs are a game changer, especially with our unprecedented growth. End quote. Chronosphere is the observability platform for clouding of teams operating at scale. Learn more and get a demo at Chronosphere.io. Again, Chronosphere.io.
0: So I know that via your message, because uh, when we talked on Slack, there was like quite a few things which exchanged. You told me that your goal in life is to make things easier for people. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. We mentioned Kubernetes, we mentioned workshops, we mentioned uh, self-hosted services. How does making things easier for people work out in practice with all these tools and technologies and the people? Let's not forget them.
4: So I, uh, in my study, I studied Informatica, which is uh, computer science in, uh, mm-hmm. in America, and deal with a uh, specialty in a human-centered design. Mm-hmm. So human-centered design is about uh, user experience design and uh, make it easy for the user. And I get uh, thrown into the, the, the infrastructure side of things because I was very interested in, in that. And I applied, mm-hmm. uh, so I applied uh, some principles into the infrastructure side of things so mm-hmm. i i say that i think that getting started must be must be fast yeah, you have to uh just clone a repository and the readme should uh should should guide you uh, as, as as fast as possible to get started mm-hmm. and to get to your to your goal i would say uh, it should be possible to contribute to a project on your first day of work but then you go into the story of yeah, yeah some people uh want to use a uh a IntelliJ uh, IDE some people want a uh, VS code IDE and another one uh, uses Vim for example mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, yeah that's that's get uh, get uh, fragmented the then the configuration gets gets fragmented so that's yeah. that's quite a challenge to align all those so for example your prettier formatter should be uh, usable in in all circumstances mm-hmm. but it must be possible in the, in the repository to to add your own workflow to apply your mm-hmm. own
0: workflow. Okay, so how does this translate to your company and the team that you're part of? Are they able to, I mean, first of all, is there like a single repository that they clone and that's how they get started? Are there multiple repositories? What is the starting point?
4: Now we started with multiple repositories, but we now are migrating to a monorepo. Mm-hmm. So uh, code sharing between uh, uh, the applications is, uh, is easy. So the the readme is the the first uh, the first step to read, and, and that uh, implies uh, yeah, fetching credentials. So where to get credentials?
0: Where do they get credentials from? That's an interesting one because there's so many answers to that. Everyone does it differently.
4: Yeah, we have uh, systems within a company in the company, so a single sign-on. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how it's uh, being uh, set up, and then you have to create some tokens for yourself and then you can use that uh, locally
0: so the tokens are the tokens to get credentials or are the tokens the credentials that users use in that last
4: last part the tokens are the credit are then uh, the credentials you use in your local setup
0: but what about for example like the database credentials or the kubernetes ones right if you don't use the database or some like for even like i think for gitlab it's easy right because you log in mm-hmm. with your company username you so it's like single oh, us or use open id or open id connect something like that yeah something okay. like that yeah yeah Auth. okay oh yeah. sure what i'm wondering about is the application the credentials which needs to mm-hmm. like do do they stand everything up locally and then the credentials get just generated how does that look
4: yeah for now it's uh you have to to fetch them from external but in the end, we want to. Uh, I want to be able to, to create a system where you just need one uh, secret uh, mm-hmm. for your personal, and then that secret is uh, can can uh, grant uh, you you to the database and uh, other other systems. That's the goal. Okay, we're not uh, there yet.
0: <laughs> so when it comes to storing secrets, where do you store secrets for the apps?
4: Now it's some are uh, just need to be entered in the application like a file dot env file for example Mm -hmm. so you it's just git ignored in in git stored
0: so we do something very similar for our application our source source of truth for secrets the changelog is still last pass but we want to migrate to vault so that's that's what we're thinking one password that's something which which i i, I used last for many many years mm-hmm. and it was like the easiest thing so let's just put them there let's just like create a shared folder and that's how we're going to to share the secrets between like we're just a small team yeah you know that has like its own challenges it is a service so you know but you
4: still have to uh, make manual action uh when you when you install your your
0: project yes so there's something to run exactly to set up and it basically generates the, the .env file. So in our yeah. case, it's make.env, mm-hmm. and then that file gets generated from LastPass. And if you were to delete it, and if you regenerate it again, it will just you know get the latest values from LastPass. That's how that works.
4: So you want to be able to use fault? Yeah. Like, yeah. And do you, are you planning to use the, the cloud version? Just the managed version?
0: So that's something which I don't know, to be honest. I'll have some people from HashiCorp in a future episode to talk about this. Like, how should we reuse Vault? What are the options? Because that's exactly what I don't know. I know it's time to move from our current setup to something better. I mean, we've been talking for a while to improve it. It was never like high enough the list. But I think the time is right for us to have a better source of truth. And Mm -hmm. I think I would prefer it to be managed. Again, this goes back to the conversation which I had with Kelsey. The database should be managed, everything documented. And I think secrets... We should have a service for that for sure yeah
4: because it's quite a beast to to manage it your own because the the impact is quite high if (laughs) if you lose access to to some systems
0: (laughs) yeah and then as you know you you should always have a backup i mean that's something that if you had to recreate things that should be fairly easy to recreate again i don't know how we would encrypt that because we need to somehow encrypt it that's something to think about for sure with gpg or
4: yeah 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 for now, uh, um, we also use, uh, of course, TLS certificates. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not using a uh, Let's Encrypt uh, system like uh, Cert Manager okay. because the certificates are just uh, with our own an uh, own CA from the company. Mm-hmm. So the, the way it was uh, fixed previously was uh, they were using uh, GitLab CI variables. Now, mm-hmm. uh, previously, they were using uh, uh, encrypted uh, secrets in Git uh, with mm-hmm. the SOPs, mm-hmm. like the, yep. the Mozilla yep. tool. But I I came across the sealed secrets uh, operator from Mm Bitnami. Did Mm -hmm. you heard about it? Yes. So we're now storing uh, the TLS certificates uh, like a sealed secret in Git. So you're able to distribute your secrets uh, uh, safely.
0: Yeah, I I think that's an interesting idea. I can see the appeal of that. The problem with that approach is that you don't know where your secrets are, like all the places where your secrets are, because they're not being spread like... As long as there's like a Git clone of your repo, there is mm-hmm. a copy of your secrets there. So I think storing secrets in Git, it has some applications, some some benefits. But I'm I'm on the fence. I'm not sure if it's the best idea. I, I tried it myself, and mm-hmm. um, in certain contexts with certain teams, we even do that. But I think I would prefer to have a single source of truth, which is managed, where all the secrets are stored, and then we pull from that, and. I don't think I would like the secrets. I would give the actual secrets if possible. I would give something that can easily be rotated and something that is rotated so that when you want to expire them or, you know, like basically refresh all your secrets, Mm -hmm. it's easy to to do so. And then everyone can get them without having to reclone, you know, re-configure things. So I see the appeal of setting connections to your source of truth where the secrets are and having a way of refreshing Yeah everyone's view the ones I still have access by the way to the secrets because i think that's the whole idea so you're you're focusing on the connections rather than absolutes like absolute files or things like that yeah, yeah, yeah. ephemeral ephemeral things which can which can get updated on the fly
4: it's also possible to, to uh, reference them like in, in kubernetes for example mm-hmm. uh, references a secret name in your in your code yeah so then the, your secret is not stored locally but when you deploy on your kubernetes cluster. In the cloud using for example devspace mm-hmm. it references that secret and you don't it can use that but you don't have it stored in your git repository
0: interesting so hang on are you suggesting to develop in kubernetes because that's crazy interesting yeah 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 okay tell me more about that
4: so i said it was uh, my mantra was uh, getting started must must be fast mm-hmm. so a lot of time is spent uh, when developing locally is to set up your system mm-hmm. so you want to Take all that work to the cloud. So we have a Kubernetes cluster, especially for, for development. Mm-hmm. And then you run DevSpace. The only tool you need is, is DevSpace, which is a uh, DevSpace.ca sh. And that, that tool is, is able to spin up uh, your infrastructure Helm chart for mm-hmm. your application and then synchronize your local files to, to the cluster. And when you make a file change, it recompiles, and then it. It uh, you can use the power of the cloud to develop for your uh, own environment. Okay. So it's kind of a remote development environment.
0: Interesting. How's, what's the latency like?
4: It's quite fast, yeah. I don't have numbers on that, but uh, uh, it, it zips them. It zips uh, the, the changes and then uh, deploys them. Uh, it mirrors them, and, and vice versa also. So... I use it a lot uh, last week, uh, for example, when running a predator on the front end code. And uh, it works great.
0: How does this compare to like GitHub Code Spaces or Gitpod? Is it something similar? or?
4: So I, I shared with you that, that uh, matrix yes. for refinements. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's the third option.
0: So for our listeners, let's go through what this is. We will put it in the show notes for sure. Mm-hmm. We have four options. The option one local native, option two local Kubernetes, option three, the one that you're talking about, Michael, is remote mm-hmm. Kubernetes and option four is all remote. So Gitpod, GitHub code spaces would be all remote option four. Yeah. Option three is a local IDE is using dev space for the CLI. And there's a remote Kubernetes V cluster. Nice. Mm -hmm. So are you using vCluster to provision Kubernetes clusters for every single developer? Is that how that works?
4: For now, I'm only the user of the cluster, but for the the future, that's the plan to use vCluster. So everybody has their own cluster for toying around.
0: And all of this runs in a single big development cluster or like, not big as much as like an actual Kubernetes clusters, but the users, they get virtual clusters. Yeah. Okay. And they use the local IDE and devspace synchronizes the files Mm -hmm. to, okay, that's interesting.
4: So the difference between option three and four is that your files are in your local IDE Mm -hmm. and uh, not in a remote. Because uh, like I said, people want to to have a custom environment on their laptop using Vim or another editor. So that's the, the, the benefit of using option three.
0: Okay. And does it work on, do you know, on an iPad? Uh, Can you use the DevSpace CLI on an iPad?
4: I didn't try it, but Uh uh, yeah, I wonder.
0: (laughs) Okay, I wonder too, because I know people that use iPads for development. Mm -hmm. They're great battery-wise, very portable, and the code runs elsewhere, so git pod, think there's something like that for yeah Gitpod. i think option 4 definitely
4: that. runs on, a, on a, an ipad yeah, yeah because what's what's the benefit of using uh, option 3 on an ipad if you also need a uh, an ide for it mm. so i think i don't think that would
0: work unless there's a good id for ipads which i don't know but yeah, that's indeed. okay all right yeah you're right i think in that case it's all remote right everything runs remote even the id okay yeah so, how long have you been using this option three, where you use Dev Space to synchronize files so this remote Kubernetes, where everything runs? How long have you been using this?
4: I've been playing around with it for a year now. Yeah, mm-hmm. and actually, it, it came from the in the previous company I worked for. We were using Docker Compose for local development, so all projects were set up using Docker. So. Uh, with Docker Compose, mm-hmm. you have your file changes uh, synchronized, but the the, the the con of that is that in the end, it for example, you have an nginx configuration in front of your project, mm-hmm. and with Docker Compose, all those and you would uh, you would set it up in the help charts, but when using Docker Compose, you are not having an actual representation of your production mm-hmm. environment. So, DevSpace is like the Docker Compose. Uh, in your in your Kubernetes story,
0: okay, I haven't tried Dev DevSpace out, but this conversation makes me want to go and check it out and see see how well it works. Did you blog about this, or you know, do you have like more details about how you use it and what works well and your setup?
4: Yeah, I'm planning to to blog about it. Yeah, okay. So I, I'm not. Uh, yet to have a blog about
0: it. I think that will be that would be good to read. So do others within your company use the same approach, or do they use something else?
4: Most of my current colleagues use uh, option one. So they have just a, a local IDE with uh, the with, uh, local uh, tools in which there, there's a lot of time going into setting up all, all that.
0: I see. Yeah, the machine installing all the dependencies, everything for development. I can see that being a huge time sink for many, for sure.
4: And also the differences between all those uh, laptops. is uh, It's a potential uh, risk.
0: Yeah. Okay. Have you seen any issues because of those differences?
4: In my previous company uh, we had some uh, differences between back uh, uh, the, the, the node uh, dependencies yeah
2: mm.
0: interesting okay but if the node dependencies were configured correctly, would it still be a problem do you think
4: yeah if your node version for your node version itself yeah I know uh, I, I have friends uh, work for other companies uh, mm-hmm. who also use just option one and they had uh, issues they couldn't uh, re- reproduce an error which which happened in production and by the time they uh, they knew the error they found it was a uh, environment change
0: mm-hmm. so like the version that they were running off the runtime or yeah okay yeah. i remember we had one of those and it was around the we i think jared was using version 14 or 13 and mm-hmm. i was using version I don't know, nine or 10. And production was version 12. So everything was like all over the place. Yeah. And the CI upgraded automatically because we weren't pinning it. And when that happened, a bunch of stuff started failing because the way the indexes were being built differed and then things were out of order. So there was like a couple of issues and finding those things, it always takes a long time. And you think, ah, if I only had these pinned locally in my CI and in production, I wouldn't see mm-hmm. these things. But it only happened once.
4: But there were there were uh, major versions.
0: They were major versions, yes. Huge differences, yeah. I mean, Node.js, I think it's a bit like that. I forget what version it's currently running at, but I don't know some people use like sixteen or mm-hmm. twelve or four. they're all over the place. You know, so you don't know what people end up using, and it works. So, you know, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. As we are approaching the end of our conversation, I'm wondering what are the key takeaways that our listeners, you would like them to have?
4: Yeah, I would say that uh, it's very important to to align with your team and uh, your setup with -hmm. your team so that everyone has the the same uh, base they are building upon. So Uh uh, have a good CI system set up, use proper formatting and uh, go about uh, how you you, uh, use Git, for example, in your team. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I learned from another uh, podcast a while back, uh, from uh, GitLab, uh, that if you have a discussion with your over Slack or something with someone, just don't hesitate to uh, to draw them into into a, to to create a call, uh, to, to create a mm-hmm. meeting, to discuss it uh, it fast. So don't have uh, the whole morning uh, chatting away, while you also should, could have uh, have a quick talk with each
0: other. So you mean like typed when you talk via Slack messages or GitLab comments in this case on pull requests, I imagine it works the same way yeah. versus just cool. calling them and, you know, hashing it out much, much quicker than you would have like ping pong, mm-hmm. commenting ping pong. We all know how fun that is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then three hours later, why don't you call me? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. Okay. All right, Michael. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, there's a couple of tools which I definitely want to check out. There's a few blog posts from you, or at least a diagram that I'm looking forward to sharing and also trying to understand myself, especially how (laughs) GitLab can upgrade itself without any downtime in Argo CD as well. I found that really interesting. And uh, I'm very curious to see what happens in, let's say, six months from now for you, for your team. How do they, you know, upgrade or, you know, move towards this new world that you're imagining? when uh you know you see people using remote kubernetes and having setups which are closer to production that's something that's 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 something which i'm a big fan of and uh, i'm wondering how i can use those tools myself to you know change things slightly how i do things because vim yeah from my cold dead hands i think that's (laughs) that's the expression that i'm looking for vim forever and how can i use my local code editor with a setup which is remote and it's as close to production as possible. Yeah. That's cool.
4: Yeah. It's going to be a great uh, learning path for all of us, I think.
0: <laughs> Thank you for joining me today, Michael. Until next time. Thanks uh, Gerhard, it was uh, quite fun. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship It. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changeup.com slash master. You can connect with like-minded developers like Michael, via changelog.com slash community. Thank you, Fastly, for the worldwide low-latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. Your beats are awesome breakmaster cylinder. That's it for this week. See you all next week. My last thought for today is the KubeCon EU 2022 blog post. Among other things, I mentioned some of the upcoming Shippit episodes, which started as hallway conversations. This blog post ships in sync with people returning from their post conference holidays.